Even when he's not feeling well, he has more energy than me. Um, As Frank said, we're in the second week of Advent Conspiracy. Um, Advent is the uh, ancient Latin word for coming or arrival. And so this is the time in the calendar year when we as followers of Jesus start to prepare our hearts, uh, our minds, um, think about our calendars, think about the celebrations, all the things that have to do with Christmas uh, to prepare for the celebration of the coming the arrival of Jesus, and at the same time, uh, we look forward to his second coming, his second arrival. This is the time of the year, or this is the time in in history where we're in between um, those two things. Nikki started us off last week uh, by reminding us, or kind of talking about the the hecticness, is that a word, hecticness? Uh, The busyness of the season, Um, it can be stressful, it feels like, some of you feel like this, like I do, sometimes it feels like you blink and it's January, Um, it just seems to go so quick, there's so much to do, so little time to do, and if we're not careful, even as, as Pastor Mark reminded us, if we're not careful to have these moments where we're focused, where we're, we clear away all of the, 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 all of the stuff, all of the sea, all the, the, that comes with this season, if we're not careful, we go all the way through December and we don't take time to worship. I know it's shocking to hear this from a pastor in a church, but Christmas is about worshiping Jesus. <laughs> like that's the point of the season. So that's the first core practice of Advent Conspiracy, it's worship fully. And th- th- this is kind of where the conspiracy part comes in. Some of you, maybe you're new to Grace Point over the last year or so, and you've heard us talking about Advent conspiracy. You're like, what's this conspiracy talk? That doesn't sound very Christmassy to me. What is the conspiracy part? The conspiracy part is to say, this is, we're going to resist some of the hecticness, the busyness. We're going to resist some of the overindulgence so that... We can focus our hearts, our minds, our calendars, our energy on what we believe is truly worthy of our energy and attention, our worth-ship, as you heard last week. So that's the first core practice, worship fully. And we're going to go the second step and talk about the second core practice of Advent Conspiracy this week, and it is spend less. Spend less. Less. Now, I don't know if you saw this or not, but last Friday, Black Friday 2022, Americans did not let talk of recession or inflation slow them down one bit. We set some records last Black Friday. In fact, um, Adobe Analytics tells us that we set a record for online spending last Friday at $9.12 billion. That's just online. That's not in the store. That's a record for online spending on Black Friday. Congratulations, America. It's a lot of money. And listen, if you're trying to figure out how much of that number you spent online last Friday, I'm right there with you. The Hughes household contributed to that figure. So I'm not here to get all scroogey on you and make you feel guilty for spending on Black Friday. There are deals to be had on Black Friday, okay? I I do not live with my head in the sand. Your dollar can go further on Black Friday. And and we don't spend all that money on us, right? Some, Some of it's for gifts that we're giving. Christmas is a season of giving. We'll talk about that next week. So um, can we just admit, though, 
it's a little out of hand. Like, can we at least mentally get there? Um, they, they say uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. What does this picture say? This is a Walmart on Black Friday. And they had obviously discounted TVs, right? So they open the door. Everybody, there's the stories of people being trampled on the way to the TVs. Uh, stories of fist fights breaking out in the parking lot because I was here in line first. No, you weren't. I was here in line first and back and forth and back and forth, back and forth. Um, there's actually a website, and it pains me to say that this website even exists. But the website is called Black Friday Death Count. It takes records of all of the deaths that have happened on Black Friday around the world since 2006. I checked it this week. You don't want to know this, but I'm going to tell you. 17 deaths have happened on Black Friday because of spending sprees, because of this craziness that's happened. 17 deaths, 125 injuries. It's the most wonderful time, right? And maybe, probably, I can't say because I don't know you, but it's probably not that intense for you. Maybe you do Black Friday shopping, that's great, but it's probably not that intense for you. Um, but maybe you feel stress around gift giving because of the number of people you feel obligated to buy for. Um, maybe you feel stress or anxious about buying the right gift that, that sends the right message. You got you to get that perfect gift. I feel that a little bit. Maybe, um, maybe you feel like you got to make sure your kids have equal amounts of gifts or at least equal amounts of money spent on gifts because you know if they're under 10, they're counting all of their presents and all of their brothers and sisters' presents on Christmas morning. You feel that pressure, right? It's just part of the, it's part of the craziness at Christmas. But have you ever stopped to ask why? Why is it that we, that we go there? Why, why in one month do we inject so much spending into the economy? I mean, if you step back and think about it, it's just crazy that this is the month on the calendar where we say, Let's spend an inordinate amount of money on gifts for each other with money we don't necessarily have, which means we have to pile up credit card debt we don't want, and do all of that as a way to show our love to the people in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that not? It's just crazy. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, you don't even remember what you get unless you get like a crazy Christmas sweater from Aunt Edna like this. <laughs> right? And again, like, I, I'm sorry. I thought it was funny. I, I may have offended a whole bunch of people, but I thought it was funny. Um, because again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be the Grinch. I'm not trying to be ho-ho-humbug. That's not, that's not what this is. That's not the goal of Advent Conspiracy. The goal of Advent Conspiracy is not to make you feel guilty for your spending. The goal of Advent Conspiracy is to free you. It's to make you feel free. And, and listen, you certainly don't need it from me. But I just want to give you permission, if you need it, <laughs> to do something countercultural. 
to do something rebellious, to do something different, permission to do, to, to worship fully in celebration of what God has done in Jesus as we celebrate his birth. And the way I want to do that, um, I want to point you to the Christmas story. I want to point you to a character in the Christmas story. We've talked about him before. Um, I want to look at some of the context of what's happening around him. And I want to try and see this from first century eyes. Okay? So if you have a Bible or a mobile device, you want to follow along. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Um, we're going to look at um, King Herod. Again, you, you, if, if you know the Christmas story, you know King Herod, but there, there's some things that maybe you don't know. Secular historians tell us uh, that King Herod was one of the most ruthless, evil tyrants in antiquity. Um, at the time that Jesus was born, this area of the world was ruled by the Romans. So Caesar Augustus is the Roman emperor. He appoints Herod to serve as king of the Jews, which basically meant that he had authority over Israel. But Caesar is still boss. Caesar is lord. There's actually literature. There's pop propaganda from that time that, that proclaims Caesar as lord. But Herod was king. Herod actually gave himself a nickname. It was Herod the Great. And he, he, he was great in some fashion, but not in others. He had a huge ego. Huge ego. He leveraged his huge ego to take on huge building projects to show off his power, to show off his wealth, to show off his prestige. Janet and I actually got to see some of his building projects this past summer when we went to Israel. The first one, uh, we can only see bits and pieces of it because Rome destroyed it in 70 AD. But um, this is an artist's reconstruction of what um, Herod's temple would have looked like. Now, the, the interesting thing is Herod built this because he wanted a capital city worthy of his name. He, he built the house of God not to bring glory to God. He built the house of God to bring glory to himself. That's why he built the temple. And we got to see the western wall of Herod's temple that's, that's still standing in Jerusalem today. The second building project we saw was Caesarea by the Sea. Um, I didn't have a drone with me when I was there, so I had to go to Google Pictures to get this one. But you get a little bit of an idea of the expanse of this. He built Caesarea um, as a coastal port city to receive ships and cargo from Rome. And he built it to impress Rome, which is why it's called Caesarea, named after Caesar. Okay? He was a great politician. He knew you had to give something in order to get something. So he used his power, he used his ego, he used his expertise, he used his leverage to build this. You can see, um, it's not a great picture, um, but there in the top kind of middle corner, you can see a little bit of that amphitheater um, that was built based on the amphitheaters in Rome. And there's actually, in 1961, archaeologists found a chair in that auditorium stamped with the name Pontius Pilate. It's the 
only piece from archaeology that we have that proves that Pontius Pilate actually existed in the first century in that area. So you have the amphitheater there. Um, you have to the left, you have the Circus Maximus. This is where they did chariot races in, in its heyday. It could hold up to 5,000 people, which was tiny um, in, in, in those days compared to others in, in the Roman world. Um, there in the middle, there used to be a palace there. You can't see it anymore. And then here to the bottom right-hand corner, you can see bits and pieces of the port. Herod invented underwater cement pouring 2,000 years ago. And most of it still exists to this day. So, so Caesarea by the sea, why, why did he build this? What was the point? Well, Herod wanted to bring Rome to Israel. Number one, to impress Rome, to get Rome on its side. And he was rich enough, innovative enough, politically connected enough, and driven enough to make it happen. But he was also very paranoid. He was a very insecure leader, which is why he built the third building project. This is Herodian. And you should Google this later, because this is fascinating. Herod basically took a mountain, cut the top of the mountain off, and built a palace inside the mountain. He built a fortress in the top of the mountain. He, he, he built this as a backup plan, because he was convinced that people were going to try and kill him. They were trying to overthrow him. This Herodium was, was Herod's Alamo. This was his, his back. This is where he was going to go if all else failed. He was so paranoid. He had members of his own family killed. He had 10 wives, only loved one of them, and had her killed. He had three of his own sons strangled because he thought they were getting too ambitious. Caesar, a, a Roman, Caesar said it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. Because Herod, as a Jew, would never touch or have anything to do with pork, so pigs would be safe around Herod. His sons were not. So this is the man in charge that first Christmas. A tyrannical king ruling over God's people, visions of grandeur, obsessed with power, hoarding his wealth, constantly paranoid. Herod ruled over what Greg Holder calls the empire of more. Build more, spend more, gain more, hoard more, because more is better. Hashtag make Judea great again. Or if you're on the other side of the aisle, hashtag build Judea back better. I'm an equal opportunity offender. Right? And under the nose of this ruthless, greedy, power-hungry empire of more, the gospel writer Matthew tells us this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of who? See, you got to read between the lines a little bit, but Matthew in one verse is giving us a contrast. There are two kingdoms. There are two kings in one verse. Herod and his empire of more versus the humble servant king, Jesus. Look at the rest of that verse. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And Herod says, what? 
king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews and I'm already born. What is this, this new king? I'm, there's only one king and I will not be threatened. My empire will not be threatened. So we're not surprised when we read that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. I bet he was. But it wasn't just King Herod, it was all Jerusalem with him. In other words, even the, even the announcement of Jesus' birth caused a reaction. It created a response. People like Herod felt insecurity and fear, like, like his birth was a threat to Herod's way of life. For others, it aroused hope and longing, and maybe this is the Messiah that we've been, we've been told for thousands of years is going to come and liberate us from our oppressors. Regardless of the response, when God entered our world, he immediately confronted the empire of more. From the very beginning, his, his very birth confronted the notion of what a king should be confronted the very notion of what Lord and Savior would even look like. Because Jesus was not politically powerful. He never flexed military muscle, had no wealth to speak of, no outward prestige that you'd expect from a king because he didn't come to be served in the palace. He came to serve his people. So we can understand why Herod might be upset. His empire, maybe his identity, his way of life is being threatened. All his power, his wealth, his prestige were under attack. And he did what threatened people do. He acted irrationally. And a man like that, who's connected like that, with that much power, with that much wealth, with a snap of his fingers, skip down to verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, the first record of state-sanctioned genocide in the New Testament. Merry Christmas, everybody. Artists have created different pieces to represent this moment in history. One of them is called the Massacre of the Innocents. It's a medieval carving from Notre Dame. And I don't know about you, but it's even uncomfortable to look at this, to think about this, like, like the lengths of which the empire of Moore will go to eliminate any threat. And it's not fun to think about. It's not comfortable to be confronted with this, but this is a part of the story. Like Christmas isn't all cinnamon and snuggles. This is a part of the story. The Herodian spirit that seeks to keep itself on the throne and crush everyone else under its foot, preserve its power and possessions, that spirit is still alive and well today. There is still a clash of kingdoms 2,000 years later. And Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, is a conspiracy against that spirit. It's a conspiracy. It's a heaven-sent rebellion against the empire of more, against the empire of bigger, better, newer, faster. It's a conspiracy. Jesus was God's message to this earth. There is a new king, and there is a new kingdom in town, and this king actually will not lord it over you. In fact, this king will lay down his life for you. 
Instead of hoarding wealth for himself, instead of protecting himself, he's actually going to give up the riches of heaven to secure your place in it. That was the good news. That's the gospel that Jesus' birth proclaimed. So when we read the Christmas story, when we come to the Christmas story, especially here in Matthew, when you pull back all the tinsel and the wrapping paper, we're looking at two kings, Two kingdoms, on one hand, Herod and the empire of Moor, and on the other hand, you have Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. Herod completely missed the reason for Christ's coming. Jesus did not want Herod's throne. He wanted Herod's heart. Just like Jesus doesn't want your throne, he wants your heart. And you and I have a a choice today unlike those under Herod's rule. You and I have a choice. Which king, which empire will you serve? Which king, which empire will you bow your knee to? Herod and the empire of Moore or Jesus and his rebellious countercultural kingdom? And I realize we don't serve a historical king like Herod. Like, we got, we got rid of that in the 1770s, right? But there are kings that are still alive and well today that demand our allegiance in America, especially at Christmas. The counterfeit king is consumerism. It is a king that demands you worship him. It is a king that demands you bow its knee. It's the spirit at this time of year that says it's bigger, better, newer, faster, and more. More stuff, more presents, more spending. The bigger, the better we spend our time, our energy, our money chasing after more. Let's just think about it just for a second. Let's just think about it personally. Have you ever come back from Target? on Black Friday or in the Christmas season? Have you ever come back from the mall? Have you ever shut down your computer after searching for gifts for hours and walked away from that experience going, I feel so much closer to Jesus now. (laughs) You ever felt that? I haven't. And I may be the outlier. I'll fully admit that. But but does shopping and stressing and spending increase the joy (laughs) Does it increase the wonder and the good news that was proclaimed at Christmas? Let's just take it a step further. Here's a statistic from a couple years ago. It floored me when I read this. It still bothers me to this day. In America, the amount of money we spend on Christmas is 45 times the amount of money it would take to supply the entire world with clean water. One forty-fifth of the amount America spends on Christmas takes care of the water problem. So what do you think is closer to the heart of Jesus? Piling more on top of more or spending a little bit less to give to those who actually need it? That's the invitation of the conspiracy to spend less. And please hear me. I didn't say spend nothing. Some of you may want to go there, but that's not what I'm saying. The goal is not to boycott the mall or sit your kids down and tell them they are ungodly for wanting Christmas gifts. (laughs) That is not the goal here. The goal is to make sure, and I am with you on this, I have to make sure my heart doesn't get hollowed out by consumerism. 
I have to make sure that my heart in spending and giving and celebrating reflects and mirrors the heart of Jesus for the poor, for the marginalized, for the under-resourced, for the oppressed. Because see, that little baby boy eventually grew up into a man. And when people started following him around and calling him rabbi and teacher, here's one of the things he warned them about. He said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. So Jesus, there's different kinds of greed. Yep. Be on your guard. Watch out. There's all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of what? Christmas presents. Oh, it doesn't say that. Possession, same thing. (laughs) Same exact thing. Jesus says, be careful. Because a couple thousand years from now, you're going to be tempted to think my birthday is about buying a bunch of stuff. But your soul is worth so much more than that. It's worth so much more. Don't buy the lie that possessions equals life. Because it doesn't. I get it. We're American. Those messages and ideas are constantly forced on us. But our Savior invited us over and over and over again to reject the peppermint lie of consumerism that says, just just buy this and you'll be satisfied. That's what possessions promise, right? Satisfaction guaranteed. Just buy these shoes, upgrade that phone, lease this car, and you'll finally be happy. And I am not the guy that will say, that doesn't give you happiness because that would be a lie. Those things do give us happiness. Those things do give me happiness. When I get a great gift, when I buy something I've been wanting for a long time, it produces happiness. I experience that when I buy something I've been looking at. I experience it when I buy some of it for other people. The question is, how long does it last? Somebody's getting a lot of tweets right now. That's a first, by the way. (laughs) Never experienced that before. That's awesome. Do you want to read them? Do you want to share them? (laughs) How long, oh Lord, does that last? For me, it's anywhere from two hours to two days. And then I want something else. And then I go searching for something else. We get happiness for this short amount of time until we start searching for the next thing to satisfy. So, so through the month of December, we spend billions of dollars hoping, whether we admit it or not, that that will give us deep abiding joy. We shop till we drop. There's very little peace, very little worship. There's emotional exhaustion. And some of us, we go into debt and wind up financially pressed. So think about this. Debt and consumerism peak on the morning we celebrate the Savior who came to liberate us from those things. Does anybody else see how that's messed up? It's upside down? Like, I, I, I I heard one guy say this week, we're trying to fit a flat screen TV in the God shaped hole in our hearts. That's why Jesus said, watch out, pay attention. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. So again, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm a pastor. So I'm here to tell you that your spending habits are a deeply spiritual issue. It's a deeply spiritual issue for me, and it can happen at any point of the year, but this is the time of the year where we are more susceptible to consumerism poisoning our relationship with Jesus. 
You spend without thinking. You're worshiping at the altar of consumerism, but it's a counterfeit king because it will never give you the lasting peace, the lasting joy, the lasting wonder you're looking for. So here's the radical idea of Advent conspiracy. What if we decided to be countercultural? What if we decided, even if nobody else does, to do something rebellious? What if instead of spending recklessly, we worshiped fully like we heard last week, we slow down a little bit, at the very least, think through our gift giving and, and scale back our spending. And if you're willing to rethink your spending at Christmas, or maybe a better way to ask it is, are you willing to challenge your own preconceived notions of what Christmas morning is supposed to look like? Like, is it, is it Norman Rockwell Christmas morning? Or is it Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Christmas morning? Is it Jesus Christmas morning? And, and if you're not willing to do that, that's fine. The rest of this will be pointless. And you can check all your tweets for the rest of the time. Okay? But if you are, I want to get practical. What, what do we mean when we say spend less? Are we talking about spending less than last year? Are we talking about spending less than our neighbor? Spending less than the average American? I mean, what does that even mean? I'm not here to tell you how much to spend. That's not for me to say. But I want to give you three guidelines. Three guidelines that you can attach to your spending at Christmas if you want to join us in this countercultural conspiracy. Here are action steps. Number one, set a limit. Set a limit. Yeah, nobody applauded in first service either whenever I said that. <laughs> set a limit. We don't like limits. But the best way to curb runaway spending is to set a limit before you even start. So think about it. We set limits for kids. Uh, we have limits at work. There are limits of what you can and can't do legally. And when we, we exceed those limits, there's usually a price to pay. Like our jails, our prisons are full of people who exceeded limits over and over and over. The danger of consumerism is there's no jail. In fact, you're actually stuck on a hall, or like a wall of fame if you're really good at this. There's no, there's no jail unless you're stealing or embezzling money. There's no consumerism jail. So there's a, there's a self-discipline thing to this. There's a wisdom thing to this to set limits on ourselves. Here's one way I read a family um, who, who decided to take their cue from, of gift giving from the wise men. Right. So the wise men show up to give gifts to Jesus. They give him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so this family decided, we're, we're going we're gonna to give you three gifts. Number one, you're going to get something you want, something from your list. Number two, you're going to get something you need, socks or shoes or a coat or a bedspread. And then number three, you're, we're going to buy an experience for you, something that we can experience together, a concert, a movie, ice skating, whatever it was. And I was just struck by how simple and smart that was. And as I read their story, what they found was, each of those gifts took on more meaning in, in limiting what they gave. They actually gave better gifts instead of just more. Less actually turned out to be more. Now, don't get in the car today after church and tell your kids, Pastor Tim says you only get three gifts this year. <laughs> Don't throw me under the bus. But maybe, 
Maybe it's just a conversation starter with your kids. Maybe it's just something, hey, can we think about this? What does it look like for us to spend less? What does it look like for us to do that as a family? Whatever you do, action step one, set a limit. Number two, make a budget. Make a budget. You heard um, Nikki refer to this last week. The average American spends above their capacity at Christmas. It's the average American. A budget is a tool to help you apply wisdom to your Christmas spending. Okay? Um, Statistically speaking, a third of every household represented in this room and watching online is still paying off debt from last Christmas. So let's just go down the line, every third household. Anybody want to raise their hand? No? No, absolutely not. Some of us need to experience the joy of a debt-free Christmas. That's all I'm saying. And a budget is the path for you to walk on. Set a limit, make a budget, and then finally spend wisely. Spend thoughtfully, spend carefully, spend slowly. Um, Some of you need this permission, so I'll just say it. Spending less doesn't mean you love them less. Spending less does not mean you love them less. In fact, you might actually find when you spend wisely that you're giving more personal, creative gifts that communicate more love. Instead of, you know, the gift card you bought them at the gas station on Christmas Eve that communicates, I just want you to know, I thought of you at the last second. <laughs> right? And I'm, I'm, I'm not against gift cards. I love the family of Golf Galaxy gift cards over here. I love those. Very spiritual experience for me to shop at Golf Galaxy. I'm not against gift cards. Maybe it's about spending wisely, thoughtfully, carefully. Maybe it's not about spending money. Maybe it's about spending time. Instead of getting your boyfriend the cookware, you buy him cooking lessons that you can do together. Let me put that part on there, right? Maybe, um, maybe it's about coming up with a list of all the mom and pop, you know, diners that you want to visit together in 2023 and start checking them off the list. What would it look like if you set a limit, made a budget and spent wisely? I think that's the ingredients to resisting the empire of more, or it's some of the ingredients. I also think it helps us worship fully. It's a practical way to create margin in your schedule. It's a practical way to create margin in your own brain, in your own heart, so that you can worship fully. It's a practical way to join the conspiracy that started 2,000 years ago that turned this world upside down. And if you do, if you spend less, you might actually discover more you might actually discover more joy, more freedom, more peace, what, what, whatever, fill in that, that blank with whatever you want more of. And the biggest surprise might just be how much more your soul enjoys Christmas instead of just getting through it. So I don't know about you, but I'm going to need help with this. I'm going to need some self-discipline with this. So I just want to pray. And I want to ask God to help us know what to do with what we have just heard. So let's pray. Father in heaven, um, (laughs) this lands in so many different places. Some of us, um, this is just how we live. 
We already have limits. There's already a budget. We already spend wisely. Um, others of us, we don't, even, we don't even really know what that looks like. Some of us, we want to be able to give way more than we actually can, but we just can't for whatever reason. So, Father, my prayer is simply that you, through your spirit, would help each and every one of us as individuals, as couples, as a family, know what it looks like to be a little bit rebellious, to be a little bit countercultural in how we approach our spending when it comes to gifts, what it looks like spending when it comes to food and to parties and all of the things that are a part of this season. And, and, and our heart behind this is, is, is not to be ball humbug. It's not to, to shove it in our brother-in-law's face and say, oh, I'm just so much better than you. It's really a heart to, to honor who you are and to honor the people around us that honestly, they just need it more than us. Would you help us as we wrestle with this? Would you help us as we make decisions about this, as we get practical with these things? And we'll give you praise because you're the one who is at work. It is, it is, it is your celebration. It is your birth and the implications of Emmanuel, of God with us, that we are worshiping, that we are, that we are celebrating this time of year. We love you. We praise you. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now the hard part starts. Go get them.